Hello and thanks for joining us on today's episode of Newsnight. I am Ladi Akiri Doluale. The proper implementation of the 2022 Electoral Act will be one of the key variables in ensuring a free and fair general election in 2023. My guest on the program today, a chieftain of the opposition, People's Democratic Party, PDP, also thinks that in spite of the security situation, the election will go ahead. But my guest thinks the power supply situation in Nigeria will not change significantly for the better until the country returns to the roadmap set out during former President Olusha Gorbachev's administration. Newsnight talks to former Minister of Power and Steel Development and former Governor of Nigeria's South-South State of Cross River, Senator Lal Imoke. Your Excellency, thank you for your time. Welcome to the program. It's been quite a while. Yes, it has. Thank you so much for having me again, Ladi. Uh, between when we spoke last and today, quite a lot has happened uh, on the political scene. Uh, but let me begin with what some would refer to as the seminal happening, uh, and that is uh, the Electoral Act uh, 2022. When you were governor of Cross River State uh, between 2007 and 2015, uh, we had an Electoral Act, but there have been several amendments and some have said improvements. Uh, what, what, what do you make of this uh, Electoral Act 2022 and its various provisions for things like campaign financing, nomination of candidates and the like? Um, well, that's um, a very interesting question. Like you said, we've had uh, several amendments to the Electoral Act. Um, um, I remember the one signed by Jonathan, President Jonathan, uh, just before the elections in 2015. And then this one, um, which was signed into law by President Buhari um, in 2021. And this uh, particular electoral act uh, sort of builds up on the uh, electoral act that had been passed previously uh, during the Jonathan administration. And so I, I find this document to be much more robust, um, much more encompassing, and more importantly, it addresses the lapses um, of the previous electoral acts. Uh, I think in Nigeria, we must see the electoral act as a living document, a document which um, will continue to be improved on as, the, as we improve on not just electoral processes, but as we strengthen our democracy. The electoral act has passed, uh, the 2022 electoral act has passed into law. Um, like I said, it's not just a much more robust document, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a foundation for the electoral process. And its passage immediately um, gave some credibility um, to, the, to, to the expectations of the Electoral Commission and, of course, the administration. So a lot of the international community and, of course, um, the players in Nigeria were all looking forward to the passage of this act. And I think its passage um, certainly uh, brings more credibility and possibly authenticity to the 2023 elections. This uh, particular electoral act addresses a lot of fundamentals. Um, um, of course, the most spoken about is, of course, the electronic um, um, transmission of results. And we've seen its application in a couple of elections, the Akiti election and the Oshu election. And I think um, these elections are certainly much more credible uh, than previous elections. We are looking forward to its full implementation 
in the coming uh, 2023 general elections. I think that um, you know its components and its and its provisions uh, certainly um, make a, would make a big difference and have an impact in terms of um, its amendments with regard to financing, funding of elections, and um, all the other things that are contained in the document. I must say that those improvements um, um, are, of course, things that we must um, agree with. But more importantly is enforcement. It's one thing to have a law. Um, it's another thing to be able to enforce its provisions. Um, it also contains provisions for sanctions and consequences, which, if we must build our democracy, must be enforceable. Um, prosecution must happen. And of course, there must be consequences. And once there are consequences, people tend to act more responsibly. So overall, um, I'd, I'd certainly say it's a, it's a very good document. Well, you, you, you are a, a, a senator and uh, you were a two-term governor. Uh, and so you, you, one would expect that uh, the more tight the laws are, the less room there is for political maneuvering. Uh, quite a number of the politicians I've spoken to have, uh, have said that the tightening of these laws leave little room for politics. So uh, I, I don't know if politically it's a, better, it's a better thing to have tighter laws or for there to have precedence uh, in the sense that you have people being able to negotiate their way through things and come up with uh, solutions that are more political than legal. Well, I, I think um, for me, I would like to say that at this stage in our democracy, what's more important um, is not so much the political, because we, the politicians, as you know, are players. And uh, you know what I mean? All players <laughs> must play by the rules, and the rules must be the same. Um, if the rules are too broad, then, of course, and naturally, we would take advantage of such rules. Uh, you know, as politicians, um, you know, there's a tendency amongst us to, to want to look for the loopholes, you know, in, 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 the, in the act, in the, in the law, uh, where we can take advantage, you know, and, and, and you know, get a benefit from. But I, I don't think that that should be the case. Um, I think that what's, what we have is an evolving process, and if we're going to strengthen it, then we must be guided by these rules. Um, we've been we've been a bit uh, we've been a we we've, we've, we've been a bit uh, reticent about this um, among some of the politicians. But more importantly, I would say that you know when you have rules and you have sanctions and you have an enforcement, you know then it also builds on just not just the integrity of the processes but also on its acceptability. There are a few other things that I think um, should be considered, um, you know, in future electoral acts. You know what I mean? Um, there are issues of, you know, um, you know, belonging to political parties and being able to cross carpets. And a few other things that I think are important as our democracy grows that will strengthen our processes and, of course, um, bring more credibility um, to each election. You have uh, a unique experience uh, in that you, you were a senator, and then you went on to be a governor, which means that you were in the National Assembly and then you went on to the executive arm of government, uh, having straddled both the legislative and the executive arms of government. Uh, there were those who said in the process of putting together this electoral act, uh, the National Assembly 
seemed to some extent to have uh, shot itself in the foot, uh, especially in the run-up to things that happened in the primary season and all of that. So I'm going to ask you about the process of putting together these kind of laws uh, and the various interests that come to play as a former member of the National Assembly. Uh, how, how do you think this process evolves? And uh, do you think that perhaps sometimes because the National Assembly is trying to look out for the benefit of everybody else, they may forget that they themselves are in fact players in the system and that they should also look out for their own interests? Um, well, I would say that, um, yes, it's a process that is usually handled at the National Assembly by, by law, constitutionally. But there's, there's a component of the, of the passage of this act that is the executive component, that is the, the signing into law by the president. And that gives us room to make uh, some amendments, as the case may be, and as we've seen in the past, um, where observations of the nature of which you're speaking to are made. Um, in the case of um, the National Assembly, yes, um, the impression we have is that the Electoral Act, um, some provisions of it were, were self-serving. But the majority of the provisions, in fairness, in National Assembly were not self-serving. Um, they were actually um, provisions that uh, actually add value to the electoral process. Those components or those provisions that seem to be self-serving with respect to the National Assembly um, all relate to the relationships um, of, between the National Assembly uh, and, of course, the executive, usually at the state levels. And what, 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 what happens is that um, there's a perception that the executives at the state uh, tend to have an overbearing influence um, over the elections. So in the process of amending the law, the National Assembly tried to address that issue, tried to reduce the overbearing perception of overbearing influence of the executive arm uh, when it comes to uh, party processes, party primaries, and selection of candidates. And I think in a bid to achieve that, yes, uh, they might have shot themselves in the foot. Um, um, as we saw um, through this last process. But I believe that there's still room after these elections to make further amendments uh, to the electoral life. Some of these things must be addressed, not necessarily by legislation, you know what I mean, but, but by uh, evolving political processes that, that seem to be fair. Um, as, as one who was in the National Assembly, like you said, yes, I must admit that being a governor meant that I had uh, more influence over the processes in my state, and um, I could um, I could I could probably um, determine to a large extent who got elected um, um, into into as a candidate for various offices. But um, I've seen instances where, irrespective of the strength of the executive, um, those who are strong politically in the National Assembly have managed to return to the National Assembly repeatedly, even um, with the opposition of the executive. So there's no, there's no hard and fast rule, um, but I, I, I would continue to say that as the democracy matures, you know, and as we, add, we, we see these uh, particular issues, um, that some of them can be um, addressed by legislation. Um, some of them would probably be addressed um, 
by interaction. But overall, I think there's been significant improvement both in the relationships and, of course, with the law in place. Um, it's also strengthened the the INEC, um, the, the umpire, for these coming elections. You were, as I said, in the National Assembly, and some of what has been said uh, is that uh, the National Assembly benefits from uh, long-tenured office holders. But there's been a high rate of uh, attrition uh, in terms of uh, uh, the movement in and out uh, at the House of Reps and at the Senate, uh, whereas the executive arm has benefited uh, where most of the governors, the president, local government chairman, and so on, serve the maximum constitutionally allowed terms. Incidentally, in the case of the National Assembly, there's no limit to the amount of terms they can serve, but yet they are the ones who have the largest number of people, you know, rolling out on the musical chairs. What is it that is being done wrong? And I ask you because I know you are someone who has managed that process at both ends very, very well. When you were a senator, you had a very good relationship with your governor. Uh, and, uh, and then when, of course, you went on to be governor, uh, you had a very good relationship with those who were in the National Assembly uh, from your state and from your party. So where is it that it seems as if we're getting the relationship management wrong? Because if we don't get that right, it does appear as if we might have development challenges as we have continually. Oh, um, I, I think let me start from our culture and some of the provisions of our laws and our constitution. Um, our laws and, our and the provisions of our constitution um, continue to talk about zoning, um, zoning arrangements. And, um, you know, that ultimately affects outcomes in elections. Um, so what you have is a situation where you could have a, a credible candidate in the National Assembly uh, representing effectively. But there's some understanding in his community or his constituency that the offices are zoned. And that when offices are zoned, then you must uh, comply with those zoning arrangements. There's some, I've had situations where in some constituencies, the House of Reps position is zoned um, for one term. And there's an adherence to the zoning. And so people occupy the office for one term and are taken out um, as a result of zoning. And um, a non-compliance with the zoning arrangement may lead to a loss in the general election. And th these are some of the issues that we need to address um, should we zone these offices, particularly the National Assembly offices, in the manner in which we zone them in some constituencies? Or should we strengthen the National Assembly by returning as many of them that are performing um, into office? I'm a supporter of uh, long tenure when I was in office, and I, I made sure that um, all those who were um, in the National Assembly for my political party um, had um, at least a second term in office. It was hardly possible for me uh, to not support that because of the importance of, 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 of the second term. And of course, a third term and a fourth term. You know, we had a, a senator who became the leader of the National Assembly because we gave him three terms in the National Assembly. And of course, that, that should have played out to the advantage of the state. Um, the benefits that accrue um, 
to the state um, are significant um, for long-tenured um, office holders, especially where they are uh, credible. Uh, with regard to relationships, I think it's also another issue. Um, the relationship between the governor and his National Assembly members is also important. Um, and we've seen situations where there's conflict. We've also seen situations where there's been an understanding of the relationship. And um, the National Assembly members, we've seen some of them go out of their way to strengthen their influence in their constituencies. And even where a governor may attempt to remove them from office, uh, the National Assembly members would return to office because they've strengthened their relationship and their influence with their constituents. And the constituents repeatedly uh, vote them back into office. On the other hand, you have people who go on and say, ah, this man has been there for too long. You know, ah, it's time for him to go. I have a member of the National Assembly in my state who has done five terms, you know, and is soliciting for another term in office. And people are saying, ah, no, this man, this is too long. And then, you know, why, why must he go? Oh, well, he's been there for too long. So you're not, you're not measuring his performance. You know, you're, you're not measuring his contribution uh, to, to, his, to his constituents and even to, to, to the National Assembly. Um, so if the basis of um, exiting from the National Assembly is, of course, um, a failure of performance, um, I would agree with that. Um, but if, on the other hand, um, the, the basis for exiting is purely on zoning or, or a governor not being happy with, um, with, um, with, 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 with the National Assembly member, for me, that is not enough. For me, I believe that those relationships um, strengthen, when they are strengthened, that's the relationship between the executive and the National Assembly members from a state. It brings tremendous value to the state. It brings tremendous value to the constituents. And when I was, when I was governor, I had the opportunity to work very closely with the National Assembly members from my state. And that added significant value to us as a people in Cross River. Now you mentioned uh, Cross River, and uh, that, that's, that's going to be my next uh, port of call, because they say that all politics is uh, uh, local, uh, so to speak. And uh, in Cross River, uh, for the first time uh, uh, since 1999, uh, your party is in opposition, even though the man uh, who is at the helm of affairs there was elected on the platform of the PDP, but he's crossed over to the APC. So the PDP finds itself in the unusual position of fighting 2023 elections uh, from the opposition camp uh, for the first time. Uh, how, how are you adapting to that as one of the fathers of the party in the state? Uh, and, and what is it that you think uh, would be uh, the benefit of this? I mean, if a PDP is in the opposition for the first time and they're not fighting as incumbents, uh, how is that going to play out in the political dynamics of Cross River State, because quite a lot of people are interested in that. Yes, you're right, actually. Um, like you very well said, um, since 1999, um, Cross River State has been a PDP state. And in 2019, um, the PDP won the elections in Cross River State. And so every election, um, 1999, 2003, 2007, uh, 2011, 2015, 2019. Um, the state 
has been a PDP state, and the PDP has won the elections. Um, so we can classify Crossrib as a as a PDP state. Um, uh, I think that that still stands because we've never gone through an electoral an election um, where the opposition has won. Like you said, the governor left the PDP uh, and came in and went into the APC, but that doesn't mean in itself that the state and and the constituents and its supporters. Uh, also joined the APC. I, I think that that was a personal decision for the governor, and I think that the people um, still remain PDP. Uh, and we can see that um, this, the support for the PDP in the state remains very strong. Uh, I believe that even um, those who are looking at the polls are beginning to see that a Cross River State remains a PDP state. Our people are just not used to uh, voting for an APC uh, a government. We've never done it before, and it's very unlikely that it will happen in uh, 2023. I believe that, um, you know, um, the people will also respond um, not just to, to, um, to the issues that have, have evolved um, with the emergence, I mean, with the governor joining the APC, but also they'll respond to the performance of the players, the actors. Um, over the years, and I think that they'll vote based on that fact in Cross River State. So I'm pretty confident uh, that Cross River State remains uh, a PDP state, irrespective of the fact that the governor um, decided to join uh, the APC. Cross River, we still call the APC the opposition. <laughs> but then, uh, 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 Your Excellency, you don't think that uh, uh, the fact that the governor is incumbent, he's in office, and that plays a role in all of this, um, you don't think that that could count for something? Plus, um, depending on who you ask, uh, there are comments that he's actually done quite well in the state and that therefore he might be able to push some of the people uh, uh, in the direction of the APC more than you probably think, especially if he has federal support, which he seems to have. Well, let me start from the federal support um, when it comes to elections. And I, I, I know that um, we all talk about federal support. Um, federal support um, does not get the people to go out and vote. Um, I'm pretty uh, satisfied with um, the new technology that will be uh, adopt adopted for these elections, uh, the B-Reverse voting systems. And I think that that, that that adds credibility to the electoral process. So the people will come out and express themselves um, like you said, some people may say that he's done well, but there are also a few people that say he may not have done as well. And I think that he is not in the election in any case. Um, so the people are going to be more responsive uh, to those who are participating in the process. And, um, you know, their manifestos and, of course, um, the, their experiences and, of course, what they are bringing to the table will count. So in spite of the fact that... Um, he may have the power of incumbency. I believe that um, this just it's, it's, it's something that is considered odd, the APC in Cross River State. And as, as, as the process evolves, uh, we're beginning to see that uh, the PDP has a very strong chance of taking back the state um, in the coming elections. And of course, um, you know, um, naturally, there'll be a number of people who uh, would be in the APC 
because of the fact that you have an APC, a governor who's migrated to the APC. Um, but but that, that will also change um, when the governor um, from the PDP emerges. It's natural. Um, so we're not overly concerned about the fact um, that the governor um, is in the APC and, of course, all his appointees are with him in the APC. Uh, PDP still has a, a strong uh, National Assembly uh, leadership. As you know, the National Assembly members in Cross River State did not um, go with the governor because they thought it better and understood the better chance of winning the elections by remaining in the PDP. And I believe that that is what will play out in the coming elections. Now, one of the things that may, because a, a lot, uh, there's a lot at stake for the election, as indeed with every election that Nigeria holds, general election, that is. Um, and, um, but one of the things that may make the 2023 election slightly different from all the elections we've had since, 20, uh, since uh, 1999 is this issue of security uh, and uh, what the country has gone through in more recent memory in terms of security breaches and security threats and challenges right across uh, all the geopolitical zones. Uh, there are some, some have called them, you know, alarmists or prophets of doom that say that uh, it's only if and when security is tackled that we can even begin to talk about the election uh, taking place in 2023. Uh, but there are others who say that, look, elections took place in 2019, they took place in 2015, and we had these security challenges then. Uh, where do you stand on this? Yeah, you're quite right. Um, the elections took place in 2019. We're active participants in that process. And of course, there was, uh, at that time, Boko Haram was raging, as it were. You know, then we had the kidnappings of the Chitbok girls and everything else that was going in the northeast. Um, but that did not deter the Electoral Commission um, from conducting those elections. In fact, I remember a Council of State meeting where I repeatedly raised the issue of, of security and um, received the confirmation and affirmation of the then Chairman of the Electoral Commission and the security agencies that um, they were ready to conduct elections and that the elections will actually be free and fair. And they went ahead to conduct those elections. And as you very well know, um, those, those elections were considered free and fair, uh, given the fact that uh, the PDP lost the elections in 2015, going into 2019. So those 2015 elections were elections that were conducted under a reasonable state of insecurity. I believe that um, the security situation in the country now is worse than it was in 2015. That's, that's, that's a fact. Um, but in spite of that fact, I believe that there's still hope um, for a better future. And that is the basis of strengthening not just the Electoral Commission, but also that is the basis of the security agencies working hard to build confidence among the electorate um, that they can secure the nation for the purposes of the elections. So I believe that working collaboratively uh, we should be able to conduct um, elections across the country. Um, the security situation, in spite of the current security, security situation in the country, and I think efforts are already being made in that regard um, to address some of these security challenges. And, um, you know, INEC uh, just recently released some guidelines that even provide for voting in IDPs 
and the processes of voting in IDPs. And I think that is taking cognizance of the fact that we have these challenges, and not just that we have these challenges, but that in the past, these challenges have been uh, issues that had to be addressed uh, during the electoral process. So I think INEC is very proactive in this regard. And I believe that um, the people um, will be confident, not just with INEC, but of course with the effort of the security agencies to secure uh, the electoral process come 2023. So yes, I believe that in spite of the security challenges, we could have credible elections in 2023, provided, of course, that the situation does not deteriorate any further than it is, than it is now. The PDP, as you referenced earlier, uh, lost the elections in 2015, and most people considered the elections credible, uh, in some cases because the PDP lost. Uh, in 2019, it also lost uh, the elections uh, for the second time. And um, do you think that, with the benefit of hindsight, because a lot was made about the PDP's record in government at that time, uh, uh, economic record, the, uh, its uh, political record, the idea that it had, you know, tended to think that, you know, being in power, it was going to remain in power. There was a former uh, statement quoted to one of its national chairmen then who said that the PDP will be in power for 60 years, uh, which some interpreted as arrogance uh, on the part of the party. But uh, uh, with benefit now of hindsight, having been out of federal power for more than seven years now. Do you think the party has learned any lessons uh, uh, from this period? And uh, if so, uh, what, were, what, what was it that it got wrong uh, that led to its losses in 2015 and 2019, which it is now going to correct? Well, uh, yes, I, I think it, uh, it would be a disaster for us not to learn from my experience, especially our failures. The reason that you fail so you can learn. And I think uh, as a political party, the PDP um, lost the elections in, in 2015 um, because of um, some of these facts that you've, uh, you've raised in your question. Um, but having said that, I think also the Nigerians were looking for something different, change, you know what I mean? And, um, and that change was not... Um, purely determined or by the performance or failure of the PDP. I, I think um, there's broad acknowledgement across board that the PDP administration uh, between, especially your Basanjo administration, uh, 2000, I mean, 1999 to 2007, were probably the best years of our democracy. Uh, of course, the, the loss of Yaradoa um, also affected outcomes and Jonathan became the president and he continued with the with the with some of the um, uh, programs of the Obasanjo uh, administration, and I think that that is important in uh, in nation building continuity. And then we had this um, this sudden uh, desire, as it were, for change. Whether it was out of the arrogance or reaction to the arrogance of the PDP, of the PDP, or on its own. Um, not not being able to hold forth. I think what cost us that election was the loss of about five governors and, of course, uh, presidential candidates and a few others uh, to the opposition party, if you recall. That was probably the one mistake that the PDP made 
uh, going into the 2015 elections, if you recall. And I think uh, that, was, that, that was consequential. And that's why I say that we must learn from our experiences and our failures. Uh, but going forward, um, let's compare administrations. I think um, most Nigerians um, are now clamoring for the olden days, as it were, um, where things have deteriorated much further uh, since 2015. And I think there's broad acknowledgement of that fact that things have deteriorated significantly since, um, since um, 2015. As they say, I think until you marry the second wife, you would not appreciate the first wife. So I think Nigerians <laughs> are beginning to appreciate the first wife. And I think that's why the PDP stands a, a, good, ex, stands a good chance of, um, of, of course, uh, winning the incoming elections, uh, the upcoming elections. Many of, those who, many of those who would want to support you uh, have a feeling, uh, especially, and I'm happy you referenced that seminal moment in the run-up to the 2015 election, which uh, you think possibly... Uh, might have cost the party the election, uh, the movement of these governors and the, the then presidential candidate and all of that. But uh, there's a feeling or a sense, if you like, of deja vu about all of this. Uh, uh, Your Excellency, we, ca we cannot run uh, from the fact that it does appear as if there is, you know, some level of friction within the party at the moment. Now, without mentioning uh, uh, names or, or the roles played by whoever it is, are you not worried about what is going on uh, at, at this point, especially because you referenced that that's what cost the party the, uh, uh, the election of 2015? Um, Ladi, worried is a strong word. Um, I think we're optimistic people, best to be optimistic. I think that in political parties, there are disagreements. And of course, um, it's, it's human nature. I believe that those agreements can be resolved. Fortunately for us, we're not in the same situation that we were in in 2015. We're not talking of governors leaving the party uh, to join another party. We're talking of internal issues that need to be resolved. And I think that to that extent, they can be resolved. And I pray that the parties um, can resolve these issues going into the elections. But like I said, um, this is different from 20, 2015, where we still have the the, the wranglings are more internal. They haven't been externalized to that extent. And I believe that between now and, um, and the general elections, and in fact the campaigns, there's, there's still opportunity for rapprochement. So let us go and take advantage of it. Let us be able to understand that we need everyone on deck to be able to win this thing. So there's no one who we can afford to do without. And I think that should be um, our approach to resolving um, this. I cannot let you go, uh, 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 Your Excellency, without asking you about uh, the issue of power. And uh, the, 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 because this is another thing uh, that you were deeply involved in, uh, especially uh, 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 at the federal level. I know it was one of the things for which you, you said that perhaps maybe uh, you, with the benefit of hindsight, you probably might have tried to avoid uh, uh, if you had known it was so hideously complicated. Well, uh, I'm sure you're not surprised then that where we are with it now is that it has become even more complicated. And uh, that has not resulted in uh, drastic improvements uh, in the output. Uh, was it that we got the privatization wrong? Did we, did we 
did we privatize them the wrong way? And that's talking about the entities that we now have. And uh, what are we to do? Because up until now, power supply is a huge problem in Nigeria. And um, with diesel costs and uh, petrol prices uh, uh, as they are now, it's becoming even more of an economic shock. What do we do now? First of all, what did we do wrong? And what do we do now? Well, I think, um, you know, the power sector is, um, is one sector that has a mix. And, um, you know, there's a social component. And, of course, there's private sector. Um, so there's also an investment component that comes in if you want to grow the sector. And, of course, um, up until recently, the sector was completely controlled 100% uh, by government. Uh, government um, needed to invest in the power sector. You know, like you said, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, my tenure as minister and as chairman of the technical board were probably the glory days of the Nigerian power sector because we're able to move the capacity from 1,600 megawatts to 4,000 megawatts. And... Um, you know, and um, that was achieved, you know, with the strong support, the political will of the leader at the time, President Obasanjo, who insisted on those improvements. And then subsequently, we embarked on, the, um, on a project which became a bureaucracy, unfortunately. That project was called the NIPP. Um, the NIPP was a project that had the federal government and the state government making the necessary investments in the power sector prior to privatization. And I think that um, that was very important because the sector was significantly dilapidated and had been, had been abandoned for about 20 or 30 years uh, before the, the Abbasanja administration came into being. Uh, so the vision for, for, the, for the, at the time was that with these investments um, that were being made through the project called the NIPP project, uh, we would see uh, significant improvement across board in the power sector. But this was not to happen. I think when the Yadra administration came into being, um, we had about something $16 billion being spent, and nobody knew where that money came from. But the thing caught wild, caught, it's like a wildfire, $16 billion, $16 billion, which never happened. You know what I mean? But uh, it, went, it went to town. And, of course, that necessitated a probe. And of course, at the end of the probe, guess what happened? Um, we still returned to the projects, but the projects had been delayed for about two to three years, and the cost of the projects had increased um, in multiples. So the project that had been initially conceptualized um, to cost uh, less than three to four billion dollars was now costing, I think, maybe 10 or more billion dollars um, for the same project. And of course, we also saw the project move from being uh, a project to becoming a bureaucracy, you know. And so we have this huge bureaucracy now that was now running this seeming NIPP project. Um, so that, that, that led to significant uh, uh, challenges. And of course, in the process, uh, there was already electric power sector reforms. If you recall, the Power Sector Reform Act was passed in 2005, and it, it provided for gradual implementation of the reforms. Um, if, you, if you recall, there were um, the distribution companies um, and, and, of course, um, the generation companies were unbundled. 
um, you know, and that process went very well. The unbundling process went very well. We saw revenues increasing uh, in terms of collection. Um, and all this, was, all this was provided for in the Reform Act leading up to the privatization. Um, but somewhere along the line, I think the Obasanjo administration came to an end. And of course, the Yadra administration came to an end. And then we had new management at the Bureau of Public Enterprises, and we embarked on a wholesale privatization of the, of the electricity distribution and electricity generation companies um, that had been unbundled. Um, Nigeria is the first country in the world, Ladi, that has embarked on wholesale privatization. That is wholesale privatization. We sold all the distribution companies and sold all, um, all, all, the, all the generation companies. Of course, um, for me, that was where we got it wrong. I, I think that um, I believe very strongly, and I still maintain that, that we should have started that process gradually. You know, um, the, the distribution companies that should have been privatized should be the most viable distribution companies. Um, you know, and to avoid a reversal of your privatization process. Right now, we're in the process of reversing privatization because of that approach. Um, if I had suggested at the time that the distribution companies that should be privatized um, initially should be the one in uh, Ikeja, which looked very viable, and of course, and which would attract private sector investment, possibly the one in Lagos, which would also attract significant investment because it looked viable given the numbers um, and the type of um, economy um, you had in, in, in those places. We had a lot of significant industrial um, presence in those areas. And I think um, that was something we needed to look at. I also uh, recommended the privatization um, of the Abuja distribution company because it was the newest um, privatized, the newest network as it were in the country. And I said, if we start with those three, then we could learn from the experiences of privatizing those two or three distribution companies uh, before we continue with the privatization program. Uh, for generation, there were some generation companies that um, were due and could have been privatized, and one or two that I think uh, needed significant investment. And what we've seen as the outcome of the privatization exercise is that the capital is limited. Um, we found that most of the capital going into the power sector is internal capital. It's not external capital. So we're not seeing external investment coming to the Nigerian power sector. And of course, you know, the cost of money in Nigeria is significantly high. You know, a lot of what needs to be done or used in the power sector to make it work is imported. And so you're finding the distribution companies and the and, of course, the, um, the, the, the generation companies not necessarily being able to um, invest um, at the rate at which we thought they should invest. I had made some recommendations um, in regard to selling the existing power stations um, and tying that invest uh, the sale uh, to continued investment in the power sector. That is, uh, reduce your sale price uh, provided that the investor is going to grow uh, the generation capacity. We are not seeing the investors being able to grow the generation capacity anymore because they pay huge amounts for the power stations are not able to get new capital um, because the reforms um, have their challenges. Of course, we also have the challenge of the regulator 
the regulator is key when you're going into um, a reform, a reformation of your power sector. Uh, your regulator had to be strong. Your regulator had to have the capacity. And of course, we have never had a regulator in Nigeria until the Power Sector Reform Act was passed. Um, so we haven't built all the institutions and strengthened them um, to the capacity uh, that we should have. And that's why I thought that the, the privatization process should have been more gradual. As it were, we have a wholesale um, privatization. And what we have now is that we're seeing the government now beginning to reverse that privatization in some of the states, in some, sorry, in some of the zones uh, that are not viable. You know, and um, we knew they were not viable ab initio, but we insisted on the privatization. And so I, I think that it's important that we review all of this. Um, there's also the social component because there's also uh, the pricing, the pricing of electricity. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's also something that the government regulates and uh, probably has to regulate um, if the private sector is going to continue to uh, provide electricity, then there must be some balance between how the private sectors uh, profit from sale of electricity and, of course, how uh, the government uh, manages the regulation to make sure that uh, consumers are not overcharged for electricity. So the private sector, I mean, the electricity sector is much more complex uh, than any other sector. And, of course, it, it requires a significant amount of commitment and political will from the top. For you to succeed, for you to succeed in any program or any initiative when it comes to delivering electricity. So, if you ask me, I would say we made a few mistakes. Um, you know, the, all is not lost. I understand there's a new uh, amended electric power reform law, um, Electricity Act. Um, I haven't um, had the privilege of reading that act yet. I'm hoping that the act um, would add to. Uh, to improvements in the sector and would strengthen the electricity sector in the country. I think it's, 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 it's unfortunate that um, after all these years, we're still not able um, to address this challenge. You know, um, I understand there's some new capacity coming on board, you know what I mean, but um, it's also difficult. I was recently speaking with the managing director of Azura, and Azura you know, was, uh, was, was one project that they thought would be a model uh, for the Nigerian uh, generation, private sector investment in generation. But Azura is running into great difficulty. And, um, you know, uh, if not for the support of the World Bank and a few other uh, investors, we would have great challenges um, with the Azura project. In fact, I still believe we still have that. So there are lessons that we must learn from all the experiences and look back and say, you know what, um, we've made a few mistakes here and there. Let's amend our act. Let's, let's make sure that the leadership is right. And of course, let's make sure that um, the transmission company is duly strengthened because that is not privatized. And because it's not privatized, government must find the capital to invest in expanding the transmission network. A very, very detailed uh, uh, analysis there. No less expected of uh, someone who, as you pointed out, was Minister of Power and uh, Chairman uh, uh, of the Technical uh, Committee of, uh, on Power. Uh, Senator uh, Alal Emoke, thank you so much for your time and for your perspective today on the program. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you so much, Ladi. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you again. That's our program today. We would, of course, like to hear from you on the conversation. Our social media handles are right there on your screen. 
You can also listen to this and previous episodes of the program via our podcast. Please visit our website, channelstv.com forward slash podcast to get started. I am Ladi Akiri Duluali. Goodbye.